right, everyone. Welcome to Dom's Club, where I, your host, Dominique Mobley, interview groundbreaking filmmakers, television writers, authors, actors, comedians, and more. I'd like to welcome into the studio the wonderful Bianca Murray, author of the book, Hum If You Don't Know the Words. The book, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, is set in apartheid-era South Africa, before, during, and after the infamous Soweto Uprising in 1976. The story unfolds through the eyes of both Robin, a young white girl who must cope with the unexpected and violent loss of her parents, and Beauty, an educated black woman who will stop at nothing to find her missing daughter. Through each of their losses, Robin and Beauty's paths are intertwined as they both learn about love, courage, and the absurdity of racism. All right, without further ado, let's welcome Bianca Murray, author of the book, Hum If You Don't Know the Words. Bianca, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Dominique. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Hum If You Don't Know the Words is one of my favorite books. I have a ton of questions. My first question is, what inspired you to tell this story? So you may have read um, from my sort of background information that I grew up in South Africa. Uh, I spent my whole childhood, most of my adulthood in South Africa. Um, And when the book takes place in 1976, which was the year of the historic Soweto uprising, I was just a baby um, in South Africa, and I was being cared for by a black woman who left her own five children behind in the Bantu homeland of the Transkei so that she could move to Johannesburg and work for my family and raise me in the process. Um, And when I was a child, I took her presence in my life very much for granted, uh, as children do, But as I grew up, I started to realize, you know, the horror of apartheid. I started to see the way it impacted her, how dehumanizing it was for her. Uh, And I really began to think about all the sacrifices she had to make in her life um, and how difficult it must have been, you know, to work for the oppressor and yet love their children um, as much as she did. And so, you know, it's kind of lifelong um, thinking about this guilt towards it, um, my relationship with Eunice, who was my, who, that's the name of my caregiver. Uh, and that's pretty much what inspired me to, to want to write this book. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So you, you mentioned that the book, like the kind of the backdrop is this Leto Uprising. What kind of served as your inspiration for choosing that as the key historical event? Right. So, so the Soweto Uprising was one of the catalysts. Um, that led eventually kind of to apartheid being dissolved. Um, up until then, you know, a lot of um, black people had believed in the kind of Gandhian philosophy of passive resistance, nonviolent resistance, um, and that wasn't working. And so the black youth decided that they weren't going to adopt the same philosophy as their parents, and without their parents knowing, without any of these older people knowing, teachers, etc., they put together plans to march through Soweto in protest of the apartheid government. Um, they didn't want Afrikaans to be the language that they would be taught in school because, of course, they didn't speak this language. Uh, and so they planned this peaceful march 
Um, and, you know, all hell broke loose on the day with hundreds of these young children being shot by the police with live ammunition. Uh, and this was a catalyst that built up steam over the years that eventually led to apartheid being dissolved. And so, you know, I wanted this to be the background to the story um, because my characters, when you meet them, are both, um, you know, going through so much. There's, there's so much um, changes happening in their lives. Uh, and so, you know, the, the um, Soweto uprising kind of was the perfect backdrop to that, to showcase that. Yeah, that definitely, I didn't know all that historical context. That definitely is key to the story, key to the background. That's, I love that choice. So like you said, you grew up in South Africa during apartheid. How did your childhood in South Africa influence how you portrayed Robin? Well, you know, the thing about children in South Africa at that time, um, you know, apartheid was legalized in the 50s, uh, and after that it was legalized racism. So what happened was children were born into this regime pretty much brainwashed to believe that they were this exalted race, um, that they were superior to black people, that they could pretty much treat black people however they wanted to. Um, and children were told this by, you know, their parents, their family members, their ministers, their school teachers. Um, and so they never questioned it. Uh, and they just, you know, went with that. And... Um, you know, so I was one of these children that was a product of my environment, um, of my society, but I had Eunice, uh, and Eunice, through her amazing love for me, through her complete lack of bitterness, kind of transformed me um, to think very differently to how I would otherwise have thought without her love, without her intervention. Um, and so, you know, Robin in the story is this little white girl um, she's grown up in this very insular kind of community um, because her father works on the gold mines. Um, and she's kind of told, uh, you know, that, that she herself is this exalted race and she can treat black people how she wants to. Uh, and she has a maid in the book. Her name is Mabel. Um, and, you know, uh, Robin's parents are murdered very early on in the story and she's then left orphaned. Um, and, you know, eventually her care will fall to somebody else. And, um, you know, it was my interaction with Eunice in my childhood. So many of the interactions that Eunice and I had that informed the interaction that Robin has with the main black character of beauty in the novel. Uh, and so, you know, there were times that I found Robin extremely, extremely difficult to write because there were times that I really, really didn't like her. Um, you know, there were instances where she was so privileged, so bratty, um, that I was tempted many times to write her much more sympathetically um, because I felt the reader wouldn't like her very much. Uh, and I knew that every time I felt uncomfortable writing Robin because it elicited some kind of response about me as a child and, and my society, that I was actually on the right track and that I, instead of avoiding those feelings, I should really delve deeper into them. So, so much um, of, you know, what Robin's... Um, her behavior, et cetera, is informed by my own behavior as a child. And would you say that there were a lot of major similarities or like maybe a lot of major differences between your childhood and Robin's? Um, I mean, my parents are, you know, still around. I have two wonderful parents. Um, my father did work on the gold mines and I did grow up in a very kind of insular kind of community. 
Robin is much braver than I ever was, but in the same way as Robin, I loved, you know, Enid Blyton's The Secret Seven, The Famous Five, and I always wanted to create these secret societies, and I wanted to solve mysteries. Um, you know, there's a scene in the novel where Beauty gets accused of stealing um, jewelry uh, because of something Robin has done, and this is something that happened to Eunice because of something I had done, you know, so, so there's a lot of parallels, but at the same time, Robin is not me, her life is not my life. I greatly, greatly fictionalized the plot of the story, um, but the essence of the character was informed, you know, by my own experiences. Yeah, that's so, like, my mind is blown. That, like, that's so interesting how you were able to combine your own experiences into this character in, like, a fictional story that was still kind of based in reality. I think that's really awesome. So you, you said that, Judy. Yeah, I, I really, I love this book. I recommend it to my friends. They love it. I, we really love this book. So you said that Beauty, who portrays Robin's caregiver in the book, is based off your own childhood caregiver, Eunice. How similar are Eunice and Beauty, and are there any glaring differences between their experiences? Right, so I actually used two characters in the novel to kind of portray Eunice's reality. So on the one hand, there is the maid that Robin has at the beginning of the story. Her name's Mabel. Uh, she isn't properly educated because the Bantu Education Act prevented um, black people from getting an education. She um, lives on the property in a separate kind of room. She eats out of her own cutlery and crockery that is separate to the family. Um, and, you know, uh, she isn't very um, sophisticated in the ways of the world because of the society that has kind of crushed her uh, and put her very much in her place. And so that, to me, was Eunice's reality um, during apartheid. But when Eunice and I would have conversations, I always said to her, you know, how, would, how did you imagine your life to be if these rules weren't in place, if these laws weren't in place? What would you have wanted to be if you could have been anything in the world um, if you weren't forced to become a maid. And she always told me that she would have loved to have become a school teacher. And this was not a reality she was ever able to have in her real life. And so I wanted to give her that reality in the novel. And so, you know, beauty is kind of how I imagine Eunice to have been if she'd been given choices and if she'd been educated and if, you know, she'd been empowered enough to carve her own um, journey through life. What was her reaction when she saw how you kind of honored her with the character of Beauty, uh, did she realize it was based off of her? Yeah, she was She was so shocked. I mean, it's actually her 97th birthday next month. Oh, uh, wow. On the 8th of May. I, I gave her and Beauty the, the same birthday. Um, so I, I stole Eunice's birthday for Beauty. Um, and I was actually supposed to be surprising her for her 97th birthday next month when I was supposed to be in South Africa and that trip now has unfortunately had to be cancelled. But um, when I first told Eunice about the book um, and I sent her the book and she saw that, you know, she's one of the people that the novel's dedicated to and she read the book uh, and I told her that she'd inspired it, et cetera, et cetera. And she was just so taken aback, you know. She said to me, uh, me, why me, my dear? I'm... Nobody's special. I was just a maid. Uh, and that just blew me away. You know, it, it blew me away because how do you explain to somebody that, you know, just a maid is the single most defining person in your life? 
the biggest, biggest influence in your entire life. Um, and that, you know, you don't have to be um, famous. You don't have to be a queen or a king or a rock star or a movie star or a politician to change the world. That, you know, you can be just a maid uh, and through your love and grace um, and the person you are, you can influence someone else's life so much that, you know, um, the rest of their lives is influenced by that impact you had. And, you know, I tried to explain that to her, um, but I don't, I don't know that, that she, you know, she's really understood um, the impact she's had in my life. And, and that's one of the few regrets that I have, that, that maybe she doesn't, that she doesn't know that now. Yeah, wow, that's that's really incredible. I love how you guys still have a relationship and how you're still able to honor her and share these share her story with the rest of the world. So switching gears a little bit, what was the research process like for How Much You Don't Know the Words? Right, so because I was a baby, um, you know, in 1976 when the story plays out, I didn't have memories to draw on. So I had to do a lot of research into, you know, what South Africa was like at the time, um, many people don't realize that South Africa did not get television until 1976. Oh, you know, wow. In the States, you had, yeah, you had television in the 50s. But the apartheid government didn't want um, South Africans to be thinking or to be feeling. And so, you know, they, they kept um, South Africans from having access to that. And even when they did have access to that, uh, you know, they were censored greatly with regards to what programs they could watch. Uh, with what they could see. The news in South Africa was very much censored during that time. I mean, we talk about fake news now in the U.S. Um, South Africa was a propaganda machine back then. You know, there was a lot of fake news. Uh, so the news that people were hearing was not what was actually happening. So I couldn't rely on the South African press's accounts of things. I had to look at the international press's account of what was going on in South Africa at that time. South Africa now has an amazing um, apartheid museum, and they have something called the Hector Peterson Museum in Soweto, which honors the, the people who died in the Soweto uprising. Hector Peterson is that little boy you will see being carried um, by somebody if you Google the, the Soweto uprising. He was thought to be one of the first children killed um, on that day. Uh, so there are now many, many resources available, and... Um, I'm lucky that my parents have a wonderful memory, so they were able to tell me, you know, what cars were being driven and what clothes were being worn, et cetera, et cetera, because I really wanted to bring South Africa at that time vividly to life for my readers, knowing that many of them, you know, are in North America and have had very little access to this culture and to this, this country at that time. Yeah, I really, I didn't know, I'd heard of the Sweto Uprising, I didn't know a lot of the context until I read your book, which is super interesting, a good historical lesson. I really, yeah, I really enjoyed that, appreciated that. Um, so you, Thank you. And it's, yeah, the, the kind of difficult part when you're trying to give that kind of backdrop in a novel is that, you know, it's not like an essay um, or an opinion piece in which you can kind of give this dry historical context to the piece. You know, you need to build it in in a very organic way so it doesn't feel like your reader's reading a textbook um, and, you know, there's only so much that can actually go into the novel without weighing it down with too much exposition. So I generally say to my readers, you know, try and read my book along with Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, for mm -hmm. example, because that's a series of essays and he's 
able to give a lot more context um, in each essay. He had a lot more, you know, um, room to work that in than what you do with fiction because your hands are much more tied with fiction. That's true. I think I've, I've read Trevor Noah's books. I do think they, they complement each other well, but kind of getting to see both sides of the experiences. That's, yeah, that's, really, that's a really good point. Uh, you don't live in South Africa now. You, you live in Canada, but you get to go back to South Africa often, maybe when you're researching for a book or anything else. Um, I, I go back to South Africa because my whole family is still there um, because I'm still very much tied to the community. I'm actually doing a huge fundraising effort at the moment for um, many, many disadvantaged families and, and vulnerable people in Soweto who were already in desperate poverty um, before COVID-19, before the lockdown that has happened in South Africa. Um, you know, the, the definition of poverty across the world is living on less than $2 a day. Um, and there are thousands upon thousands of South Africans who live in desperate, desperate poverty. Um, and I used to run a nonprofit organization there when I still lived in South Africa. Um, and I'm now involved in, you know, um, fundraising efforts to try and get food um, and resources to, you know, people who are living in squatter camps, these informal settlements, no running water, no electricity, um, no opportunity to earn an income. And they were really living hand to mouth before the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine how desperate the situation is there now. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I'm very involved with um, some children in South Africa because of work I did years ago uh, in my nonprofit with HIV AIDS uh, kids. So, you know, I, I get back every second year. Sometimes I manage to go back twice a year. Um, this year was, was going to be one of those years, and, uh, you know, I'm very disappointed that that's not going to happen. But I'm doing whatever I can from Canada um, to help South Africans during this time. That's amazing. Just a quick question. How do you pronounce Eunice's last name? It's Ngogodo. Ngogodo? It's a name. Yeah, it's a name. So it's Ngogodo. You know, you, you guys wouldn't say it with the click, so it would be Ngogodo. Okay. So last year, thank you, uh, you created the Eunice Ngogodo hashtag own voices fund in honor of your child yep. caregiver Eunice. The fund's goal is to empower black South African children and women to write and publish their own stories. What was the inspiration behind creating this absolutely wonderful initiative? Right. So when I began writing this novel, I was extremely reluctant to write from beauty's perspective. I was very much aware of how, as a white, privileged woman, I had benefited my entire life from apartheid. And so what could I actually know about what it was to be poor, to be um, a black woman so oppressed during the apartheid regime? Uh, and so I tried to write the book without writing from beauty's perspective, but it fell, you know, completely flat because all you had was the perspective of this little white privileged girl. Uh, and so I knew to do the book justice, I would have to write from both voices. Uh, and so I made this pact with myself that when I started writing from Beauty's voice, that I would do it as authentically as possible, that I would do it with humility, understanding how little um, I could understand this experience, and that I would do it with enormous respect um, and reach out to black South African writers 
uh, and hire them to be my sensitivity readers and to reach out to cultural experts and anyone who could make sure that I got the story as authentically right as I possibly could um, while portraying, you know, this amazing, amazing, rich culture uh, in the best possible light that I could in terms of not disrespecting it. And so, you know, there was a deep dive into that when I began writing. Uh, but even after I did that, even after I was told by many black South Africans, some of which were journalists, some of which were critics uh, and fellow novelists, you know, they told me that I did a really good job of it um, and, and they were happy with it. But even so, I still felt super uncomfortable appropriating a voice that wasn't mine. Uh, and the reason I did it is because, you know, I spent 10 years in Soweto with this nonprofit that I was um, running and I was volunteering with another organization. Uh, and these women shared their stories with me. And for many of them who are HIV positive, they knew their time was running out. And so they just wanted their stories heard. They wanted their legacy to live on. And so I felt this, um, you know, ob not obligation, like a sense of responsibility to, to share their stories with the world. And it made me so sad that they couldn't tell their stories themselves, either because they were ill or because they didn't get an education and so were never empowered to tell their own stories. And so it's very important for me that going forward that these kinds of stories are not told by people like me, by privileged white people, that these stories are told by the people who have lived them. Um, and that has been very, very important to me. And that's why I started that initiative um, because, you know, the women of South Africa have got amazing stories to tell and they just, they just need to be empowered and they just need to be given the opportunity to tell them. I completely agree. For, do you often find the, these aspiring writers, these women yourself, or do they find you? Uh, so I have been very lucky in terms of the people that I've reached out to. So um, I've reached out to uh, publishing um, houses in South Africa, um, and to editors there, um, women of color, black women, um, and they've kind of helped guide me in terms of initiatives that they are running. And we all kind of came together and formed this initiative together in which, um, you know, we set up a residency uh, in um, South Africa for black women to take time off their jobs, to take time off work and to work in this residency um, on the material and then have that material fed into these pub publishers who were looking for own voices. So, you know, um, with everything I do, I kind of just am a conduit. You know, these women are the ones who really do all the work. Um, and I just say to them, what can I do to make this easier for you? What, what resources do you need? And so I kind of try to use my platform and my privilege to get them the resources that they might otherwise struggle with. Um, but honestly, you know, it's, it's very little that I myself am, am doing. I'm just kind of bringing the right people together. That's an amazing initiative, an amazing organization. I, I'm really interested in learning more about it. Uh, so switching back to um, how much we don't know the words, without giving any spoilers away, what made you decide to use the book's line, how much you don't know the words, as the book's title? Yeah, so the book was originally going to be called something else, as is the case with most novels. Um, I was going to take the title from the uh, opera saying, you know, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. 
um, because there is this Shabin queen, Mama Fatty, who was a real Shabin queen, by the way, but she uh, was active in the 60s somewhere else. And so I read about her, loved her, stole her, put her in the 70s in Soweto. Uh, but then I wrote this line in the book um, where Robin's Aunt Edith says to her, you know, just hum if you don't know the words. And that really, really stuck with me as a metaphor for what these characters were going through. Um, Robin's kind of floundering. She's, she's just trying to get from one day to the next. She has very little power, and yet she's trying to control things in her life. Same goes for Beauty, um, whose activist daughter has gone missing, uh, and Beauty is desperately searching for her. She's out of her element. Um, and, and I think in a subsequent chapter, Beauty says, this is what it means to grow old. We no longer know the words to young people's songs. Uh, and I'm only 44, and I already know that. You know, I listen to young people's music, and I'm like, what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, for a much older person, that's, that's even more true. And so um, that phrase stuck in my mind uh, very much. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but even like, post-apartheid, South Africa has 11 official languages. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't and, know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's a national anthem has multiple languages in it that, you know, uh, more than 20 years after the end of apartheid, not all South Africans can sing in these languages. So often if you see South Africans singing the national anthem, they'll kind of hum through the bits that they're not sure of that language. Um, oh, so it, it sounds okay. like a metaphor of South Africa um, and what these characters are going through. That's really interesting. I actually didn't, I didn't know there were that many national languages, and I didn't know that. When you, if you were to see maybe like any like a South African singing the national anthem that they often hum it, I actually wow, that's really interesting. Uh, now I'm gonna look out. Yeah, for that. I'm yeah. Be like, I know, <laughs> I know this now. Uh, so you know, this what? is why Nelson Mandela post-apartheid called South Africa the Rainbow Nation. You know, it was this oh, melting okay. pot rainbow nation of so many different cultures, so many different languages that you know he was trying to crystallize into one vision. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I did not know that. That's really cool. What uh, what would you say inspired you to become a writer? I I think I wanted to write from the first time I learned how to read. I, I remember looking at letters and them kind of falling into place into meaning, and something just shifted for me. There was something in the alchemy of it. It was magical that these letters on a page could all come together to mean something and create this vivid image in my mind. Uh, And so I wrote my first book when I was seven Um, and I illustrated it myself, but I must admit I stole very much from Edmund Blyton. Um, I think it was pretty much a magical faraway tree ripoff in all honesty. Um, (laughs) But since then, you know, I always wrote and I was lucky enough in my life to have amazing, amazing English teachers one in primary school, Wendy Barrett, um, who encouraged my writing very much, and one in high school, Lynn Voigt, who encouraged my writing. Um, and, you know, so it was pretty much the only thing I wanted to do. But in South Africa at that time, you couldn't study creative writing, um, you know, in terms of a degree. And so I studied English, and then I got super distracted with life and went on to do many, many other things. Uh, and then, you know, um, before... Um, I just after we arrived in Toronto, 
I said, I'm going to study writing formally. For the first time in my life, I'm actually going to study it. And that's when I started writing this novel. Um, so for me, it's a lifelong dream come true. That's so awesome. And I also love how this is like your first book and it's literally great. And you're like, oh, like I learned how to write and then I wrote this amazing book. That's so awesome. Uh, did you well, have this any- is the first book of mine that was published, but it was the third novel I wrote. Uh, oh. And the first two were widely rejected by everybody. I wrote them in South Africa. Uh, and I remember I was so disappointed when they were rejected. Um, so, you know, uh, I've learned my craft and I've studied writing and and my writing so much better because of it. Yeah, that, your writing is definitely excellent. I love this book. I can't tell you enough. I really, really love this book. Did you, did you have any favorite authors while you were growing up that maybe inspired your um, career? I have had so many favorite authors, and they've, they've been my favorites across so many different genres. Um, you know, I have read widely across all genres. I mean, when I was a kid in South Africa, when I was like 12, we didn't have YA. There was no young adults um, that was available to us at that time. So I remember going from like books, you know, Sweet Valley High books or Sweet Dreams books. And I mean, the only books we had then were like pretty much romance. Um, I remember going straight from that to kind of Daniel Steele uh, and Dean Koontz, Um, because these were kind of the books that were available to us then, um, and um, Agatha Christie, et cetera, et cetera. And then from there, I just read widely. I, I honestly can't say it was until my 30s that I discovered literary fiction um, that had a huge, huge impact on me. But, um, yeah, you know, my list of favorite authors is just, way too long to, to cite, but I can say that Catherine Stockett's The Help and Sue Monk Kids' The Secret Life of Bees were mm-hmm. two books that were very defining for me in terms of I could relate to so much of the story, and yet so much of my experience was different enough that I wanted to tell my own version of those two novels. Yeah, now both of those were turned into movies, correct? Yeah. Have you seen the adaptation? I haven't seen I haven't seen or read them. I really want to. Have you seen the adaptations? Yeah, I've seen both of them. Um, yeah, the the adaptations were both pretty pretty good. You know, the books, um, like the help hasn't aged very well because of the whole um, white savior narrative that runs through the book. But I think for its time, it was an incredibly thought provoking read, um, and it allowed us to kind of have this talk about appropriation and white saviorism, et cetera. Um, I think The Secret Life of Bees has aged um, a lot a lot better. But with me, I, I always think the books are so much better than the movies. <laughs> and I mean, both of the movies would definitely be worth watching. I, de- I definitely want to check them out, Secret Life of Bees and The Help. I'll do that right after this. Uh, so awesome. what for you is the best thing about being an author? I, you know what, I feel like interacting with my readers is one of my favorite parts because, um, you know, being a writer, it's quite a lonely endeavor. You kind of lock yourself away all day and you talk to your imaginary friends. Um, and, and that's pretty much what writing is, you know. Uh, I was set up for this pandemic because I spend my life in my pajamas and, you know, <laughs> working from home and, and not wearing makeup, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, I'm not one of these writers that when I sit down, I say to myself, 
these are the themes I want to convey and, and this is kind of what I want to weave through the story and this is what I want my story to mean. So I just, I talk to my characters. I form a relationship with them. It's almost like I'm a clairvoyant and I'm channeling my characters and I get them down on the page. And then my book goes out into the world and I get told the most extraordinary things by my readers, which is what I absolutely love. Like they see things in writing and they tell me what the themes are and they tell me um, what's come out and what's important. And I remember my first, one of my first book clubs for Hum If You Don't Know The Words, somebody said to me, this book is a wonderful meditation on motherhood. And I said, no, it's not. It's not a meditation <laughs> on motherhood at all. And they said, are you crazy? And they like kind of listed, you know, Beauty's a mother who can't mother her own children. Um, Robin's mother is not a very good mother. She shouldn't be a mother, but she is. And then she dies. And Robin has to go to her aunt who is in no way equipped to be a mother. And they kind of went through all of this. And I sat back and I was like, oh, my God, this book is a meditation on motherhood. Um, <laughs> You know, so I just, I love interacting with my readers on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. I love hearing from them. I love touring and sitting with readers. I kind of feel like that's my my favorite part. And, you know, I just, I feel so lucky every day that this is something I get to do. Uh, I kind of have to pinch myself every day because I almost can't believe that I, that I get to do this. Absolutely incredible. When So you mentioned your readers. When you're writing do you usually write with that audience in mind or do you kind of just write the story and then the audience finds it? Yeah, I, I never write with an audience in mind, you know, because you never know who these characters are going to appeal to. I mean, I've been approached by, you know, men in their 80s who absolutely loved my two novels that I kind of consider feminist works. You know, I don't consider them um, books that would appeal to men uh, and yet they've approached me and said how much they loved it and, and how much it resonated with their own experiences. So quite honestly, I, I don't think about my readers at all. I channel these characters. Uh, and, you know, I trust that they will find the readers that they're meant to find. Um, and this is why I love booksellers. And this is why I love bookstagrammers. Um, and, you know, people like you, because when you find a book and you love it, you will put it in the hands of other readers. And this is how my books get read, you know, it's through booksellers, it's through readers, it's through bookstagrammers um, who make sure that the books find their, their way into the hands of the people who should be reading them. Thank you. I, it's actually interesting. I remember I found this book when I was actually at the library. It really, like, it caught my eye. I read it. The cover art was beautiful. And I read the description, and I was like, this, like, this is a book I need to read. And I read it, like, as fast as I could. I couldn't put it down. I was, like, at dinner reading the book. Um, so, I, yeah, it's definitely great book and I love that we're able to interact with you and ask you questions. It's super, super awesome. Um, do you do you have a favorite book that you're reading right now? I have read a few books recently that I have loved. Um, I would say the one that's kind of stayed with me the most um, was Claire Lombardo's The Most Fun We Ever Had. Um, I really, really loved that novel from last year. It's a multi-generational family saga that she did an amazing job with. And I'm currently reading Ask Again, Yes. Uh, and that's because everybody on Instagram was saying that I should read the book. And mm -hmm. because, you know, they told me to read the book, I read the book. Um, it's by Mary Beth Keen. Um, 
And yeah, so those are kind of the two standouts for me in the last while. Do you primarily enjoy books of like a similar genre to what you write? Uh, no, I I will read, you know, across all genres. Um, I like historical fiction. I like literary fiction. I, um, I'll i read YA as well. I'll read, you know, anything. All I want is a good story well told. Uh, and quite honestly, I love psychological thrillers. That's kind of my go-to genre. Um, that's what keeps me distracted during times like this when I can't focus very long on anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the third novel that I'm busy polishing up on now is a huge deviation for me in terms of genre. I've gone from like literary fiction to writing uh, a psychological thriller that's a domestic suspense. So, in, you know, the books I've written, I like to keep my readers guessing. I like to take them by surprise. I like to kind of have these red herrings and then have twists and turns. So I thought for the third novel, I would completely commit to that uh, and and have the book entirely be like that. I'm really excited to read that now because I know I was kept on my toes for how much you don't know the words. So now that you're dedicating all of that, like, suspense to a different novel, I'm very excited to read that. I can't wait for that to come out. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, yes, we still have to try and get it sold to a publisher um, publishing at the moment is, you know, uh, it's kind of a very different place. At the moment, there's a lot of books that were supposed to be coming out now and next year being moved out uh, further along in the publishing timeline. So we'll see what happens with it. But um, it's a book that I've thoroughly enjoyed writing, uh, and I, I really hope it'll find a readership. I'm, I'm, you have at least one reader here. I'm very excited. I will get the book. <laughs> And then you, now you know there's at least one person, and I will tell everyone to read it, and it'll be great. Uh, that's wonderful, Dominique. Really, um, your support is amazing. Um, and, yeah, like I say, my readers are my favorite people. Um, they they keep this book being read. I mean, it's crazy to me that three years after Hum came out, it's been read more now than it was after it just came out. And that's not true of all books. Most books have, like, a four-month life cycle, and if people don't pick it up, on that then it kind of fades into obscurity mm-hmm. uh, and it's people like you that ensured that this book hasn't faded into obscurity thank you yeah I really I think it's a really important book I, I really love it do you do you have any advice that you would give to aspiring authors yeah you know what for me the most value has come from writing groups um, and you know because like I said before writing so very lonely um, if you're doing it with other people who are in the same boat as you, uh, they give you this amazing support. I have the best writing groups. Um, and, you know, writing can be tough in terms of the amount of rejection you get. Uh, and we as writers are generally more sensitive than other people. And yet, you know, we get terrible reviews. We get a lot of rejection. We get a lot of um, critique, which is tough. And if you do that with a good community of people, it makes it so much easier. And also getting other people to read your work, to critique your work, um, and then revising your work based on that feedback um, is an invaluable process. Um, My writing groups read every single thing I read, and they make it so much, so much better that I can't imagine doing this process without them. So, you know, read up on writing as much as you can. There's so many amazing books out there on writing. You know, study writing if you can. But if you aren't able to afford to study writing, then, you know, just sit down and do it. Do it and get better at it and give yourself permission to write awful first drafts 
because every first draft is awful and then commit to getting better. That's my big advice. That's absolutely great advice. For the writing groups, do you recommend, like, what kind of sizing? Like, do you think a lot of people have multiple writing groups? Um, I have multiple writing groups. Like, I have three, but I know a lot of writers who just have one. Um, the writing groups are generally anywhere from, like, three to six people because we are reading each other's work. So I will critique my fellow writers' work, and they critique my work. Um, and you don't want it too big because otherwise it becomes quite cumbersome. Um, and you, you just, the most important thing is choosing those people wisely. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote an amazing, amazing article on who you should consult um, as an artist in terms of getting feedback. Um, because if you consult the wrong people, um, it can ruin the whole creative process um, and it can ruin what you're trying to do. So you need to consult with people who are invested in you, who are invested in your writing journey, um, who know what you're trying to do, who share your vision, and who want to make you the best writer they possibly can and make your work the best work it can possibly be. And so long as you surround yourself with those people, the right people, um, the, work will be, the work will be good. That's, that's a great insight. Oh, wow, that's very, that's very helpful. Um, so what's one thing you did not know before becoming an author that you wish you had known? Um, that's an interesting question. Like, I feel, I, I feel like I should have known that everyone's kind of a critic um, and that once you finish a novel, it goes out into the world. Uh, and so, you know, you lose control over it and so people will have all these opinions about your work. Uh, and sometimes that can be incredibly tough. So sometimes you can get an important review uh, in which that reviewer just didn't get what you were trying to do um, or they, you know, came to the review with a kind of an agenda. And that can be pretty heartbreaking. Um, it can be quite devastating um, seeing your work kind of torn apart. Uh, and I wish I'd kind of known early on that not everybody will get your work, not everybody will like it, and that's fine. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't have read quite so many of my reviews early on, and I wouldn't have allowed them to impact me quite so much early on, and I would have focused instead on the, the good things people said, because I feel like it's human nature that we focus on the negative, mm -hmm. um, but I've learned over the last few years to, you know, let go of the ones that didn't like your work, don't get you, don't get what you're trying to do, and to focus on the ones who do. There's power in that. Yeah, I completely agree. That's wonderful advice. I'm definitely I'm writing that down. I really I really love that. <laughs> so Bianca, thank you so much for being on the show with me. Thank you for being here. This has been the best time. Bianca Murray, everyone, go by Hum if you don't know the words. One of my absolutely favorite books. Thank okay. you, Dominique. And if you do go by, please get it from an indie bookstore. <laughs> Be sure to check out Bianca's book, Hum If You Don't Know the Words. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dom's Club. Follow me and the rest of Dom's Club at DominiqueMobley.com, Dom underscore Mobley on Instagram and Twitter, and Dominique Mobley, no spaces between the Dominique and Mobley, on YouTube. See you next time at Dom's Club, and until then, enjoy life. <laughs>